from Genesis to Revelation, the entire Bible testifies to the immense and disproportionate power of speech, beginning with God's creating word of power and concluding with Christ's self-description as the Alpha and the Omega, the first and final letters of the alphabet that form all of the words that we speak. Words and speech are powerful. But it's not just individual words. Individual words really have no power on their own. Apart from a context, words have no meaning. They don't do anything. So there's nothing special about the particular sounds of the words that we say. Words carry multiple senses. They change in definition. Some fall out of use over time. The real power in words is when they're put together as an utterance as sentences and paragraphs that do something when we speak them. With our words, we can describe the things that we observe. We can assign names to different objects. This is the descriptive power of speech that we need to navigate the world around us. But that's not where the power of speech stops. Speech can be used to inform, to instruct to encourage, and even to create new realities, such as that moment when an engaged couple becomes a married couple by the power of the pastor who declares husband and wife. Creation and life are in the power of speech. But so are death and decay. Speech is sometimes employed to deceive, to mislead, to discourage, to destroy happiness and joy. Nothing destroys a relationship or a community more quickly or more permanently than the destructive power of speech. When our speech is used for gossip, for verbal abuse, to lie, to put others down, destruction and death appear everywhere. So it's no surprise that the New Testament gives special attention to the power of speech. These New Testament letters provide guidance for the life and preservation of the church, of the community of faith. And James, in particular, wants us to think carefully about how we speak. He wants to weed out the kind of speech that could threaten to undo the early church and that can threaten to undo our church. For this reason, he cautions people to be quick to hear and slow to speak. It's 119. He warns against using speech to assign value to people based on their external appearances and worldly metrics. That's in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. You shouldn't use your speech to show favoritism. He even accuses those who fail to control their speech while claiming to be religious of holding to an empty religion and being self-deceived. That's 126. Speech is very important for the community of faith. But those references to our speech are just simply pointing forward to this chapter, chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, where he deals with the issue in depth. He emphasizes the disproportionate power of speech. 
Because speech is powerful, teachers must cautiously wield the power of speech. And what's true for teachers is especially, well, that's especially true for them, it's true for everyone else as well. We have to be cautious because we're speaking not simply from our tongues, but from our inner person, from the heart. So three points that we'll track with this morning. First, teachers must cautiously wield the power of speech. Second, everyone must cautiously wield the power of speech. And third, everyone needs heart transformation to control their speech. But first, attention is given to teachers. Teachers must cautiously wield the power of speech. He warns, not many should become teachers, my brothers, because you know that we will receive a stricter judgment. Now, we just have to have a quick side note. For a very strange reason, I'm not quite sure why, in our translation, this term Adelphoi is rendered as brothers here, but everywhere else in the letter, it's rendered as brothers and sisters. I want to suggest that's how it should be translated here. So it should say, not many should become teachers, my brothers and sisters. This is consistent with what he says later on in this section in chapter 10, when he says, my brothers and sisters, same term, these things should not be this way. So the warning for people not to hastily become teachers, is directed at both brothers and sisters in the assembly, both men and women, who take up teaching responsibilities of any kind. Now, I'm making this point because I'm afraid that someone might read this text and think that James is talking only to pastors. And that is true. He's talking to them, but it's false that he's talking only to them. Now, at Resurrection Church, We hold to the traditional practice of limiting the office of elder or pastor to men who meet the qualifications and competencies listed in 1 Timothy 2 and Titus 1. But we do have many female teachers in our assembly. In fact, on any given Sunday, there are more females teaching than there are males, given our nursery and Bible class divisions. So as we consider this warning to teachers— I want us to think that it especially applies to pastors because they teach and preach so frequently and there's a certain authority connected to the pastoral office, but it really extends to anyone who teaches in the gathered assembly. So James warns that not many people should become teachers because they will receive a stricter judgment. Now, he's not referring to the judgment that the listeners will render upon the speaker, though if you've done any kind of teaching or public speaking before, you know that critique and evaluation comes quickly as soon as you're done teaching. That's not the kind of judgment that he's concerned about. He's concerned about a future judgment where Christ will render a verdict about the way that that teacher used his or her speech. There will be a divine examination that will be more thorough and consequential than the divine examination that all believers will experience. So he already warned in chapter 2.12 that Christians should speak and act as those who are going to be judged. Now he's saying, teachers, you will be judged more strictly than the rest of the Christians because you are speaking 
in a way that takes responsibility for the spiritual formation of other people. And you are speaking with a kind of authority that is invested in teachers and preachers in a local assembly. For that reason, those who desire to be teachers or preachers, pastors, should not do so hastily or thoughtlessly. The decision to become a pastor or a teacher can't be taken up with a cavalier attitude, as if this would just be something fun to do, or I really like saying words, so why don't I do that professionally or every Sunday and speak words to other people? The teaching role is a sincere and heavy responsibility. It's especially heavy because teachers in the church will be judged, scrutinized by Christ himself. All too often, teachers in the church have abused the authority that comes with their position, and they've neglected the responsibilities that are necessary for teachers to take on. On the one hand, this is understandable. James reminds us in verse 2 that everyone stumbles in many ways. We all stumble. We all fail. No pastor or teacher is perfect, just as no church member is perfect. We all sin. But because of that, those who preach and teach should be all the more wary because we know that at some point we're going to fail with our speech. And when pastors and teachers fail, the effects are disproportionately potent. When a pastor or teacher sins with their speech, it has more impact on people than the average Christian. That's why the judgment will be more severe. Now, when we think about the ways that teachers and preachers fail, we, we could just stop generally here because James just references general stumbling. But I want to draw attention to several ways that he uh, draws attention to throughout the letter that people sin in their speech. And if the normal person sins with their speech in this way, probably pastors and teachers are even more prone to do so. So first, he warns against speaking falsely about God and his work in the world in chapter 1, verse 13. So we might characterize this as a failure of doctrine. Teachers and preachers might fail in their speech. They might stumble by teaching false doctrine or inaccurate doctrine. Sometimes these errors are small and inconsequential. So sometimes we might say something true, but ground it in the wrong parts of Scripture. We use a text to say something that's right, but not what the text is saying. That's an error. Sometimes the errors are more grave. Things that should be labeled false doctrine. That these teachers and preachers should recant and repent of. And when people continue on in false teaching, the church needs to call them to repent. And if they don't, those teachers should be removed. But I think in our assembly, given our high commitment to the Bible, that's not going to happen as often as it might out there. In here, I think our errors may come doctrinally more often by failing to be diligent in our studies, whether it's for a sermon or a Sunday school class lesson. For that reason, no one who teaches or preaches at our church should just wing it or mail it in or talk off the cuff or just rely on whatever the curriculum happens to say this week. 
We ought to be diligent about studying the scriptures and making sure that what we say is doctrinally true so that we don't stumble doctrinally. Second, James warns against using speech to show favoritism. This is that whole section in chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Pastors and teachers need to be on guard against leveraging their teaching and preaching to curry favor from the wealthy, the famous, and the popular. It's easy for pastors to preach and teach in a way that gets people to like them and support them and follow them, and we must avoid this. But it's also easy for teachers and preachers to speak favorably towards people they like and harshly towards people they don't. Off the cuff, in a conversation in the lobby, in a Sunday school class lesson when there's that kid who just keeps annoying you and won't pay attention. It's easy to show favoritism in our speech. Third, James warns against using speech in verbally abusive ways. That's here in chapter 3, verse 9 in particular, using our speech to curse other people. James points out how evil it is to use your speech to teach about the glories of God and the gospel in one moment, and then when you step out the door, start to complain about your congregation or to speak harshly to somebody else. Or when you're in a classroom and you berate someone who's listening to your teaching, these things should not be that way. But we all stumble in various ways. We speak about the mysteries of Christ in one moment and then harshly to our listeners in the next. Fourth, James warns about hypocritical speech. This is what he's getting at at the end of our text in verses 9 through 12. And essentially what he's trying to say is that we have hearts that have sin in them and we speak what is true, and then we live differently in our lives. Pastors and teachers must especially be careful to live according to their own teaching. That's why this sermon is so scary to me today, because I know I'm going to leave and I'm going to speak sometime, and I will stumble in various ways. Pastors and teachers must diligently apply what they preach and teach to their own lives so that they're examples of what they're calling their listeners to be. I don't think I need to lean any further into James's warning against many of us being teachers because with these warnings, probably we're all resigning our post by the end of the day. So don't, don't do that if you're a teacher here. Um, talk to us first about that. We'll, we'll let you know if your speech has really been that, that bad. We all stumble. We know it. But that doesn't mean we quit. So to those who are already serving as teachers in our assembly, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for taking on that task. Thank you for serving in that role. We appreciate you, especially those of you who teach in the nursery and in the, the younger ages with the children. That's a lot of hard work. And if there's anything that we can do to make that easier for you, if there's anything we can do to equip you and support you, let us know. We, we want to help you as you carry out that responsibility. To those who don't serve as teachers in our assembly, but who might want to do so, I want to tell you that's a good thing. It's not wrong or prideful to want to teach. 
but it's not something that you should pursue with self-serving motivations or just thoughtlessly because it seems like a good idea. Even when we might approach you and ask you to become a teacher, you shouldn't respond very quickly. You should think about it. You should consider what it is to become a teacher. Now, if you want to be a teacher and you suspect that you might have self-serving motivations, this is my recommendation to you. Sit in on one of the two- and three-year-olds' class times, and you'll realize that there is nothing self-serving about teaching at church. In about 10 minutes, all your poor motivations are going to be suffocated, and you'll probably be rethinking that decision. But we don't want you to totally rethink it. Talk to us. We want to talk to you about what it would look like to be a teacher in our church, even as we warn against wrong motivation for doing so. To everyone here, I want to ask you to pray for the teachers and pastors in this church. We need your prayer, and not just for when we're teaching, but for every time we're interacting with people in our church. I'm so thankful that there are individuals who every Sunday morning pray for everything that will happen in the service. Every teacher and preacher gets prayed for in that time. And I'd ask that you would take that with you when you go as well. Pray for us throughout the week, knowing that we are doing shepherding visits and counseling and one-on-one discipleship. We use our words all the time, and we stumble in many ways. So pray that God would keep us from stumbling. And if you detect stumbling in our lives, failures in our teaching, whether it's doctrinal or hypocritical, please approach us and with the affection of Christ, Talk to us about those points of stumbling. We're not stumbling because we want to. We probably don't even see it. Teachers should cautiously wield the power of speech. But the truth is that everyone must cautiously wield the power of speech. So if you thought this would be a sermon just to myself and Josh and Steve, sorry, it's also to you. Everybody here needs to cautiously wield the power of speech. That's what James does in verse 2. He broadens this warning to everyone in the assembly. Teachers stumble in many ways, but so do all Christians. So after asserting that everyone stumbles in speech, he comments that if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is mature, able also to control the whole body. It's like he's saying, okay, everyone sins with their speech, But man, if there's someone who doesn't, that guy is perfect. The problem is, no one is that guy. Everybody struggles in their speech. Everyone sins. So everyone needs to take caution. To make his point about the disproportionate power of speech, he draws on three images. A horse and a bridle, a ship's rudder, and a forest fire. So in verse 3, He says, now if we put bits in the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we direct their whole bodies. So even though a bit and bridle are really small in comparison to the size of the horse, they allow a a rider to guide and direct that whole horse. So too the tongue, though small, has power over a whole person's. I think this analogy is especially helpful because a bit in in a horse's mouth has the ability to guide that horse, to turn it, to lead it in particular places. And we shouldn't press the analogy too far, but I want to press it a little bit. 
A bit in a horse's mouth can do great good, but it can also do great harm when that bit and bridle are in the wrong hands or when they're in inexperienced hands. That bit can cause immense pain to the horse, including cuts and soreness and bone-deep pain that they'll never recover from. I think our speech is very much the same. We can guide and direct whole people with our speech in positive ways, but we can also do great damage to them. I think all of us need to consider that, but I'd suggest that parents in particular ought to consider the way that your speech can be used to powerfully guide your children for good or to harm them, perhaps for the rest of their lives. You wield outsized authority over your children, and that is good. God gives you that authority, but in your speech that articulates that authority, you could do lasting damage to your children through careless and abusive speech. Take caution as you seek to instruct and guide and counsel and correct your children that you do not do so in harsh and hurtful ways that might get your kid to do what you want. It gets the horse to churn its head, but it also inflicts bone-deep, long-lasting pain in the process. He shifts then his analogy from the horse and bridle to a ship and its rudder. Verse 4, and consider ships, though very large and driven by fierce winds, they are guided by a very small rudder. Wherever the will of the pilot directs, so too, or so too, though the tongue is a small part of the body, it boasts great things. So once again, a small thing in proportion to the whole vessel, it's got disproportionate power. That rudder, though, is not actually what is most important. It's the pilot guiding the rudder. We can all envision ships like that, but you can envision a pilot of the ship who is not skilled or isn't very capable or is simply misguided, who has the rudder at just a couple degrees off, and at the end of the journey, they arrive at a totally wrong place. They don't get where they're wanting to go. Our speech is like that, isn't it? It has the power, once again, to guide, to bring ourselves and other people to our particular place, but it also has the potential to mislead others, to misdirect them, to lead us in a way that we should not go. That's because the proper and improper uses of the tongue doesn't really have anything to do with the muscle in your mouth. It has everything to do with the desires of your heart. So James then shifts his analogy once again, this time in a completely negative direction. Verse 5, he gives no positive comments about the power of the tongue. Instead, he pictures it like a small spark in a dry forest that starts a raging fire. And the tongue is a fire. The tongue, a world of unrighteousness, is placed among our members. It stains the whole body, sets the course of life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. That's a stern warning. Hardly a year goes by without reports of irresponsible campers who start forest fires that wreak havoc across entire forests, 
causing devastation of property, loss of life, often through something as careless as the discarding of a cigarette that wasn't fully put out, or a spark that lights up dry kindling and spreads across large portions of a forest, or a fire that just wasn't fully extinguished. In the same way, our careless words, like that cigarette that's flicked to the side and starts a forest fire, our careless speech can have devastating consequences. When we talk off the cuff, when we give a knee-jerk reaction, James is writing to Christians, communities of faith that ought to submit their speech to the rule of King Jesus, that are intended to display heaven on earth. But too often, when our speech is lit by the fire of hell, we make our community, our church, and the people around us more hellish than heavenly. We use our speech to bring death and destruction instead of life and restoration. This is what the proverb is getting at in 15.7. The tongue that heals is a tree of life. Think of the tree in the garden, in the tree in the new creation. We have access to that through the words that we speak. Our words can sustain a community. They can cause people to flourish or it can destroy it. Through the misuse of speech, a thriving church can go up in flames. This reality is present in any church, but I want to suggest that it's especially present in small churches like ours. We're like the size of a house church in the first century, like 50 people. The power of speech in a small assembly is even more disproportionate than disproportionate than your speech at a church of 2,000 people. That's just the way that communities work. That means that we at Resurrection Church have to be especially judicious and careful in the way that we use our speech. Now, you might not feel like your words carry much power. You might think, nobody cares what I have to say. But James is not content for you to keep thinking that. Stray sparks start forest fires. They look small. They bring great damage. Careless words crush others. That spark might not look like much, and you may feel like what you have to say isn't going to do anything, but your words do carry great power. So we need to be careful so that when we speak, our words will have a heavenly rather than a hellish effect on this church. So that whenever you speak, your words make Resurrection Church look a little more like heaven than hell. That's what James is getting at with this analogy. And when you encounter an aspect of our church's life that doesn't look very heavenly at all, where there's decay and destruction, you ought to use your speech to bring restoration and healing instead of fanning the flames and making the problem worse. With these analogies, he makes a point that our speech is disproportionately powerful, so we need to wield it with caution. But he's going to hammer this point home in verses 7 and 8 with one final image. He points out that humans have found a way to tame any kind of animal that they want to tame, 
but they can't do so with their speech. So every kind of animal, bird, reptile, and fish is tamed and has been tamed by humankind, but no one can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. We need to take that warning to heart because here in the West, in the United States, we value our freedom of speech. We like to assert our right to say whatever we want to say without taking any responsibility for it. Christians must set aside self-serving and poisonous uses of speech, even though it's legal for us to do it in the United States, in favor of loving, life-giving uses of speech. Because our speech ought to be guided by the scriptures and the coming day when we'll give an account for it, rather than by the First Amendment. This is a hard thing for us, because we live in a culture that encourages us to say what's on our mind, to post it on social media, to say it in our workplaces. But Christ doesn't give us that freedom. We have a different kind of freedom, the freedom to bring life instead of death. So everyone needs to cautiously wield the power of speech. But the reality is that everyone needs a heart transformation to do so. Every one of us needs a heart transformation to control our speech. James is going to make this point by um, illustrating a situation where speech is used hypocritically, and then he's going to give us a few more images to draw the point home. In verse 9, he says, With the tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in God's likeness. So James here is envisioning a situation where believers have gathered together on a Sunday to worship God. They've given praises to God. They've blessed God for who he is and what he's done. And then, when the worship gathering is over, the scene shifts, and as people depart, they use their words that they just used to praise God to curse God's likeness, to speak negatively about other people who bear God's image. So in one breath, God is worshipped. And in the next, a person is verbally abused, gossiped about, lied to, put down. Significantly, as James has done throughout this section, he includes himself in that illustration. Because he says this, with the tongue we bless, and with the tongue we curse. James is saying he's not above this. He's not above walking into the gathered assembly on Sunday, praising God, and leaving by provoking people to wrath into controversy with words. All of us do this whether we would like to admit it or not. James, however, is mature enough to follow up that observation by saying, these things should not be this way. We often are content to leave using our speech, using our speech negatively towards other people, but we can't be. We must agree with James that these things should not be this way. I think that this illustration is the most convicting one in the whole passage because we can very easily excuse our unthoughtful words or explosion of speech that come during a challenging situation at home or at work. It's all too easy when you're trying to get that 
car seat buckle to finally work that's not working, to say something harsh and accusing to your spouse, and to be able to brush it off by saying, sorry, I was just frustrated. It's harder to do that when we leave the gathered assembly and sin with our speech. Our excuses melt away when we consider that we've just worshipped God and then churned our words against our fellow Christians before the day is over. At our church, our failings in this regard are especially tragic because we end each Sunday gathering, coming to the Lord's Supper, partaking of the bread that signifies that we are one body, that declares our oneness in Christ. So when we leave, having recognized the body of Christ among us, having communed with one another, and use our words in a way that imparts death and destruction instead of life and healing, we are doing the exact opposite of what we just testified to you at the table. Hypocritical, duplicitous speech has no place among God's people. But James points out that the problem isn't with our tongues. It's with our hearts. None of us can ever say, sorry, my tongue made me say that. No, I spoke out of what was in my heart. So he draws three images together to make this point and to show us how silly it is that we do this. The first image is of a water source, verse 12. Does a spring pour out sweet and bitter water from the same opening? It's impossible for a fountain to give sweet and bitter water. And as one commentator notes, that if ever you put sweet and bitter water together, the bitter water will win out every time. Put life-giving speech and destructive speech together, and the destructive speech will win every time. If you start a sentence with, I don't mean to be offensive, and then you go on to say something offensive, it's the offensive speech that sticks. If you say, I don't mean to be a complainer, and you go on to complain, it's the complaining that actually comes out. The second image is of a fig tree that produces olives, and a third image is of a grapevine that produces figs. These images are just ridiculous because no tree produces fruit that is not part of its nature. Now, this isn't totally true anymore because there's this guy who found a way to graft a bunch of um, like uh, stone pit fruit trees together, and there are trees that produce 40 kinds of fruit, but it doesn't happen naturally. It's an exception that proves the rule. I'm only pointing that out because if someone leaves and says, well, he clearly doesn't know about this 40 fruit producing tree, so I can use my speech duplicitously. We have further revelation in the tree. Um, That's not true. That's the exception that proves the rule. It's the thing that Jesus is saying. Either make the tree good and its fruit will be good, or make the tree bad and its fruit will be bad, for a tree is known by its fruit. How can you speak good things when you are evil? For the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. I tell you that on the day of judgment, people will have to give account for every careless word they speak. Sounds like James is copying his brother's teaching in this text. It's teaching that we need to take to heart. It's teaching that shows us we need a transformation of our hearts. So what do we do with that warning? I don't think that James is trying to be overly pessimistic here. He's just pointing out the reality of our situation. So what do we 
do with these warnings, these revelations that our speech will only be controlled through the transformation of our hearts. First, pay attention to your speech because it's an indicator of what's in your heart. Pay attention to the way that you use your speech, and when you use your speech in hellish ways, don't ignore it. Think about it. Consider what it is that your speech is revealing about what's in your heart. Do the hard work of detecting the heart problems that are underlying your speech. It's very easy for us to ignore those circumstances when our speech reveals something, to move on quickly, to speak other words, to excuse it away. But treat your speech like a dashboard on your car that tells you something is wrong down there. Don't waste your hurtful speech. Put it to work. Second, don't be dominated by fear. And don't try to fix your speech problem by never speaking. A wrong way to respond to what James is saying is to be so afraid of stumbling, knowing that we're all going to do it, that you just decide, I'm not going to speak very often at all. I'm just not going to say anything. Well, you need to realize that your failures are part of Christ's plan for you to grow. It's part of the way that Christ actually will transform you. So you might think, that if you can sin with your speech less often by never speaking at all, that somehow the holiness meter in your heart will go up and the sin meter will go down. But that's not how Christian transformation works. Very often, just like any other aspect of development in our lives, whether it's through learning a skill or building a muscle, our heart only becomes more holy when we fail to display holiness, but then correct it. So don't be dominated by fear or try to fix your speech problem with a vow of silence. That's not the answer. Instead, third, confess your sins of speech to God and to those who you sinned against. If we know that everyone stumbles in their speech, we should have no problem admitting it when we do. That is so freeing. It's so freeing To be able to say when someone comes to you and confronts you and says that you sinned against them in your speech, to be able to say, you're probably right. I I don't see it. Help me see it. Because I know that I stumble in many ways. It is so freeing not to have to defend ourselves and to deny that we sin with our speech. We can admit it. We can confess it to God and to the person we sinned against. But we need to go deeper than simply admitting that we sinned with our speech. We need to make the connection between our speech and the sin that's in our heart and confess and root out that sin as well. It doesn't do to pull out the fuse that controls the lights on the dashboard so you don't see the check engine light anymore. You've actually got to take care of the problem. It won't do to put a black piece of electrical tape over that light and pretend the problem doesn't exist. To confess, yeah, there's an issue, let's cover it up. True confession will work its way all the way down to the heart. But that doesn't go far enough. Fourth, embrace the forgiveness and calling of Christ. doesn't just stop at confession. When you confess your sins, both of your tongue and of your heart, you are assured of the forgiveness of Christ. 
you have the affirmation of his pardon. Even when the people that you confess and repent to won't give you theirs. Christ will forgive. He is faithful and just to do so. It's a pardon that goes all the way down to the sins of the heart. But with that affirmation of pardon comes a call from Christ as well. He calls you to come to him for forgiveness, and he calls you to be more like him, to follow him, to reject the sins that grow so easily in our hearts and that flow so quickly from our mouths. So affirm Christ's forgiveness and follow after him. He has promised that he will, by his spirit, transform you day by day as you follow after him. That transformation won't come quickly. It won't happen overnight. It's a slow process. But in that slowness, you can be assured that as you work to submit to his commands, as you plead for the Spirit to transform you into the image of Christ day by day, that Christ himself is pleading on your behalf and making the transformation possible. I don't want to downplay James's warning that we must take responsibility for our speech. We must do that. But at the end of the day, the only way we can do that is by giving ourselves over to Christ because the transformation of our hearts is not so much something that you and I do, but something that Christ does in us. So let's pray with him to do that. And as we sing a song of response, will you let that be your prayer? for Christ to be working in and through you to transform your heart so that he'll transform your speech. Father, we thank you for this hard word from James. We don't want to run away from it. We don't want to resist the responsibility that you've given us. We want to embrace it, but we know that we can only do so through the transforming love and power of Christ. So work that in us. Would you allow us to see where we sinned? Give us the humility to confess that sin to you and to those we sin against. And give us the confidence to receive the pardon that we have in Christ and to walk in newness of life, moving beyond the stumbling, to walk more securely in him. It's in Christ that we pray. Amen.